You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be together. Great to join you in your homes this morning. My name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors. And I want to welcome you today to join us uh, in our study of Daniel. We've been uh, w- working our way through the book of Daniel. Now, originally, this series was just going to go from Daniel 1 through Daniel 6, which is the narrative portion uh, of the study, which is the life of Daniel. But we've decided to go ahead and just press on. So in a rare act of heroism, uh, I'm going to teach chapters 7 through 12 in the coming weeks. Uh, I totaled up this morning, and I've been uh, teaching weekly for 30 years this June. So in June, I'll celebrate 30 years of weekly teaching. And in that time, I've I've, uh, been able to skirt all apocalyptic visions in the Bible. I've never taught them, but we're, we're coming up on that. So please pray for your boy, as the cool kids say, and uh, just pray that you, uh, that I will be able to communicate something meaningful. And at the end of it all, if we find out we don't agree on eschatology, uh, pray that we can toast and remain BFFs. So here we go. Today we're in Daniel 6. This is a historic Sunday school felt board passage. This is in the greatest hits, Daniel and the lion's den. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to look at the one who is greater than Daniel. So what I'm going to do is read sections uh, of this chapter and then explain them and then make some application at the very end, seeking to see the one who is greater than Daniel. So let's begin by reading verses one through nine. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. 
Well, I really want to look at two ideas from this chapter today. And the first one is that we are called to be faithful. And that's where we're looking right now, called to be faithful. We're on the third king now, Darius. Some say Darius, but I'm going to go with Darius. Uh, He's the third king in the book of Daniel that we have encountered. And yet Daniel is still a constant in his leadership and rulership in Babylon. We're about 70 years, almost towards the end of the exile at this point, and he is now being promoted to rule the whole kingdom. So there are these three key officials as the king has divided up the land, and of the three, he selected Daniel to be the ruler of them all. And so the other ones, um, it's implied that they're, they're uh, probably motivated by jealousy or not wanting to see him be distinguished above them, as the text says. Uh, they go looking for some dirt on Daniel. What the text tells us is that they are looking for something that they can pin on him so that he would be disqualified for leadership. But surprise, they can find nothing. I mean, can you imagine this? There's no skeleton in his closet as they look at his years of leading and in serving as a civil official. They can find no bribery, no dishonesty, no theft. They find nothing. There's nothing that they can even make up a false scandal about. It led one commentator to say the first miracle in chapter 6 of Daniel is a squeaky clean politician. I mean, who could imagine such a thing in modern times that they could find nothing of substance wrong with him? So verse 5 says, these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So in other words, the conspirators are saying, we find nothing with your character, you're above reproach, but you must believe something bad. There must be something about your faith, if not your life, that would disqualify you from leadership. You must believe something in your religion that sets you at odds with the kingdom. And this is how it works sometimes, is that if we can't be resisted by virtue of our character, we're resisted by virtue of our beliefs. Daniel is a compelling model, isn't he, of what it means to live faithfully in exile. We've, we've uh, called this series Public Faith, and Daniel is demonstrating in model-like fashion what it means to walk out public faith, because Daniel doesn't just profess faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, but he lives it out. And in particular, he brings it to work on the job. He's living out his faith for when his co-workers, his co-vice regents, begin to look in his business they find nothing that would implement him with wrongdoing. He is acting as one who is faithful to his God. Now, we don't know what he communicated about God on the job. If you think about Daniel in this, in this narrative, we really find very little out about his spiritual life. We're going to find out he prayed in a minute, but we know very little about his spiritual life in the sense of how he communicated. I mean, was he hosting uh, a, I don't know, a a Torah study at lunch for his coworkers? Uh, Was he witnessing the good news that Yahweh is one who rescues his people? Did he have the Ten Commandments up on the wall in his office? We don't know. We don't know if he was doing anything overtly to verbally communicate his faith, but we do know he communicated something about the nature of his God through the way he worked. 
Uh, Look at verse 3. It says uh, that he distinguished himself above all others because an excellent spirit was in him. And that they could find no, verse 4, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. So in verses 3 and 4, we learn something about public faith in Daniel's example, is that he distinguished himself by his excellence, an excellent spirit was within him, and his faithfulness. They could find no wrongdoing because he was faithful. He distinguished himself by excellence and faithfulness. This is really a model for all of us to consider. Whatever it is you do for your job, he was in politics. He was a uh, a leader in the civil government. Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent. Maybe you work in IT or in sales or in construction. But whatever your job description is, this example from Daniel really would, would make a great purpose statement. You know, seeking to be distinguished by excellence and faithfulness for the glory of God. That's what he does. Excellence and faithfulness for the glory of God. And I think this is so key for us right now. As we think about what we do spending uh, our time during our days together, last night I was on a uh, Zoom call uh, with the couples that are on our pastoral staff, and we just took time to go around on the call and, and say, what are we doing during our days? What do our days look like? And, and what we realize is that everybody's day looks different largely than it did uh, just a few weeks ago. And our work lives look different these days. But if there's ever been a time for a Christian to stand out with excellence and faithfulness pointing to our Savior ever before, I think it's now. Because as businesses have had to make changes in how we work, they've done so with workers, with the staffs who are anxious, worried, fearful, angry at times, complaining, Uh, burdened under a heavy cloud trying to do their work. And so this is really a time when our work can be excellent and it stands out, or where we can be faithful to seek to love our coworkers and love those we serve as well. I think it'd be great to ask the question based on these verses, you know, what does excellence look like in my work right now? Whatever you're doing as a stay-at-home parent, now maybe a homeschool teacher, or or whatever you do during your day, what would excellence look like in this work? Or what would faithfulness look like? How can I keep my commitments? How can I fulfill my responsibilities for the glory of God? The New Testament teaches us that when we work, we don't just work in an excellent fashion, a spirit of excellence, merely for a boss or for a client or for a customer, that we're not just faithful so that others will give us a pat on the back, but that we work for a higher, a higher being with a higher calling, that ultimately we don't work for a boss or a client or a customer, but we work for God Almighty. And so the calling of Daniel here, he is working with excellence, he is working with faithfulness, but he does so as one who, is, who recognizes God's calling upon his life. As he lives in exile, he stands out among these unbelievers as one who follows God. Well, everyone, everyone doesn't celebrate his faithfulness. As a matter of fact, they conspire to take him down. They don't want him to be promoted. So what they do is they go to the king and they say, hey, king, um, we've got this great idea for a new law. It's a 30-day law, and the law is that nobody can pray to any god but you. And so that makes you sort of the conduit to the gods, 
And uh, the, the purpose of this ultimately, he agrees to it, Darius agrees to it, probably because it's flattering, but the purpose of it as well is probably like Nebuchadnezzar's statue. It's, it brings the nations together in a unified way around their king, unified around their king who acts as an intercessor before the gods. And so he loves the idea, and they add, well, there's one other kind of uh, you know, point to this law. Make it according to the law of the Medes and the Persians so that it's irrevocable. So no matter what happens, you can't go back on it for 30 days. Well, he agrees to it. Here's what happens next, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes the petition, but makes his petition three times a day. Well, Daniel goes about his regular prayer. He, he prays probably in a room that's on top of his house on, the, on a flat roof, um, and it has a window, and he, the window is facing towards Jerusalem. So he pr- prays three times a day towards Jerusalem. The law didn't require him to pray three times a day, and the law didn't require him actually to pray towards Jerusalem. But there is an Old Testament text that points to what he's doing here and gives clarity to us of why was he praying towards Jerusalem. I think this is fascinating. In 1 Kings 8, when the temple is dedicated, Solomon is praying at the temple dedication. And Solomon foresees a day that, that the people of God would sin and fall away from him. And what he prays, at the, they're just dedicating the temple, and he's already looking down the road if Israel should fail. And he prays that if God's people sin, if they are judged, and this is what he says, if they are taken into captivity, they are to repent and pray for mercy, and this is what they are to do. Quote, they are to pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. So what he's saying is, if they're taken into captivity, then they are to face the land and the temple and pray, repenting and giving thanks, remembering that you are a gracious God, that you provided the land, that you provided the temple, that you are a trustworthy God. That's what Daniel is doing. He is praying three times a day towards God who provides graciously, God who provided the land, God who provided the temple, God who called the people to himself, God who meets with his people, God who is a forgiving God. It's sort of a way of saying, though I live in exile in Babylon, my values and my purpose and my calling 
and my goals and my heart is not rooted in Babylon. It's rooted in Jerusalem. My heart is not rooted here. It's rooted in the God of mercy and his purposes, the God who has acted graciously to save his people. This is how we thrive in Babylon. It's keeping one eye on our callings in Babylon and the other eye on Jerusalem, or for us, the other eye on God and his purposes. What Daniel is doing is he is praying for strength, that he might not be conformed to Babylon, but he might be in it but not of it, that he might be conformed to the purposes of his God. It's very powerful that he does this three times a day. He doesn't just get absorbed in the lifestyle of Babylon. He keeps his mind refreshed and focused and empowered by the truths of God's grace to him. Well, the conspirators tell Darius that Daniel pays no attention to you. He isn't obeying your law. And it's fascinating. The king's not angry. The king doesn't say, bring that sorry whatever to me. The king is distressed. The king is distressed because Daniel has made a difference. Daniel is the one he can depend on upon all, above all others. And so he spends the day trying to come up with a way to rescue Daniel, but there's no way out. So here's what we read in, uh, next in verse 16. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den that the king sealed with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God." And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Man, Darius the Mede, that is a rough place. When I did the flannel graph as a kid, I never saw children eaten by lions, but that's in the story. A cruel world, and they, he punishes those who accused along with their wives and with their children. That's the way, uh, their children, that is the way of the world. Well, Daniel is put in the lion's den, 
It's the word is often translated pit. He's probably placed down in a pit, a lion's pit, because in verse 23, it says he comes up out of the den. So it's, it's probably a hole with, a, with lions down below. Somehow he's placed in this pit. A, a stone is rolled over it. And Darius says to him, may your God deliver you from this. He wants, he wants him delivered. Uh, he puts a seal over the stone, and then the king goes home, and he can't sleep that night. He is so troubled for Daniel, his servant. Daniel's been a faithful man, and he obviously loves and cares about Daniel. So he, he doesn't sleep at night, he doesn't eat, and he wakes up at the break of day and runs with haste uh, to the den to see if Daniel is alive. And he asks this question in verse 20, has your God whom you served continually been able to deliver you from the lions? This is such a key question in the second half because the second half of this chapter is not about a calling to be faithful, but it's about a call to trust the faithful one. This section is about our call to trust the faithful one. And he raises that question, is your God able to deliver you? Were you delivered? The question is, will God be faithful to his servant who has trusted him? And this is the question really we must all ask. I mean, we all find ourselves in various pits in our life, various dens of suffering in this way. And you may be there today. Uh, You may be facing evil or resistance. You may be facing uh, discouragement, loneliness, fear. You may be... uh, facing financial challenges during these days, some kinds of difficulty or opposition. And and the question that Darius raises is one for all of us to ask, is God able to deliver? And the answer from Daniel 6 is absolutely yes. He is able and he is faithful. Daniel explains, hey, an angel came in the middle of the night, shut their mouths, and and, uh, the lions did nothing to me. I'm totally I'm totally unharmed. And the point is that God is worthy of our trust. The reality is that being obedient may land you in a pit, but God always delivers his people. Then once again, like Nebuchadnezzar before him, uh, Darius makes a declaration about the greatness of God. And this is a theme that continues in the book. Uh, The theme is that the unbelievers are making these glorious statements about the nature of God once they see him work. So Darius says in verse 25, to all the people, all the languages that dwell in the land, he says, peace be multiplied to you. Verse 26, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And this is what he says about the God of Daniel. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Darius says everybody is called to fear God and tremble him because he, two things about him. One is he has an eternal kingdom, and two, he rescues and he saves. He saved Daniel from the lions. 
Now, there are hints in this text, and especially we pick it up in this second half of the text, where it's not about Daniel's faithfulness that's on display, but it's about God's faithfulness and us, our call to trust the faithful one. There are hints in this second section that this story points to a greater story. If you were doing your ESV journal Bible this week, I know many of you got that and are journaling through, taking notes, studying the passage before we get there. If you were studying this week, did you notice that there are some references in Daniel 6 that map on to the Easter story that we read last week? Maybe you took note of that when you studied this week or even in just hearing the reading. So, for instance, Daniel is put in a den, and verse 17 says, The stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet. That's exactly what happens when Jesus is placed in a tomb. Or look at verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. That, that mirrors the story we read last week about the ladies who rise, rise early to go to the tomb of Jesus. Uh, there are references here that very clearly point to the resurrection story. You know, one part of the resurrection story that's rarely taught uh, on Easter Sunday, I've never taught it on Easter Sunday, but it's one of the most important truths, especially about how we read our Bible. In Luke uh, 24, on the day of the resurrection, that evening, there's a couple of guys walking on a road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them in his resurrected state. Now, they're prevented from realizing that it's Jesus, but they begin to tell Jesus, like about himself, they witness about Jesus to Jesus, telling him, hey, there's this guy named Jesus. He was crucified. He rose. And now there's some ladies that have told his disciples that he's alive. And then Luke tells us that Jesus takes these two guys and quote Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So what Jesus does is he takes, that's the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. He takes the law and the prophets and he runs through them and shows them how they all point to Christ. That all the Old Testament ultimately points to Jesus. The Bible is one story and these little mini stories like the story of David, they point to the greater story which finds its peak in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It all points to him. The story of Daniel points to one who is greater than Daniel. Daniel functions, and we see it in this chapter, as a type of Christ. He, his story points us to Jesus, not only in the sealed den or the sealed tomb, not only on the morning rush to see if he is alive or not, but think about all the ways the story in Daniel mirrors the story of Jesus. I mean, here's just a few of the ways this points beyond itself. So, for instance, the high officials together conspire against Daniel, verses 3 and 4. Matthew 26 says, The chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So there's a plot among leaders against Jesus, just as there is Daniel. The conspirators could find no blame in Daniel. They look, but they can find nothing worthy of blame. Mark 14, the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. 
Same thing. Daniel trusted his God. It says that he was released from the den because he trusted God. And we see Jesus trusted his father praying on the night he is arrested, not my will, but yours be done. It's interesting, Darius, a leader, a ruler, Darius, the sort of political authority, tries to release Daniel, but he fails. In the same way, Pilate tries unsuccessfully to release Jesus, offering up Barabbas, but ultimately fails to release Jesus and says, I wash my hands of his innocent blood. Daniel rose from the pit, and then it says he prospered. He prospered in his calling in, uh, under Darius and Cyrus. So he rises from the pit, and he was restored to rule in Babylon. Jesus rises from the grave, and it says all authority on heaven and earth is given to him. Jesus says that of himself, exalted with a name above every name. He rises to rule as well. So there are aspects of Daniel 6, where clearly there's a type. Daniel serves as a type, pointing us forward to Jesus. But while there's similarities, Jesus is the one who is much greater than Daniel. You could say Jesus is the true hero. He is the true and better Daniel. Daniel is called blameless, yet he is still a sinner. Jesus is the sinless son of God. Daniel faces the possibility of death, but Jesus actually dies. Daniel serves as a model of faithfulness. Hear this, Daniel serves as a model of faithfulness, but Jesus serves as the substitute who dies for us in our unfaithfulness. Daniel escaped death, but one day later in the future, at some point, he dies. Jesus actually dies, rises from the tomb, and he lives and reigns forever. All Scripture points to Jesus, and sometimes it's hard to see that in the Old Testament, but it leaps off the page to us in the story of Daniel, that Daniel is faithful, but he ultimately points to the one who is entirely faithful. Daniel 6 calls us to be sure to be faithful in our lives, but it ultimately calls us to trust the faithful one who died to forgive the unfaithful and empowers us by his spirit, the resurrected Christ, empowers us to live faithful lives today as we walk out our life in exile, just as Daniel did, awaiting our true home. Daniel 6, it is impressive to read the resume and the story of Daniel for sure, but Daniel 6 calls us to lift our eyes to Jesus. Jesus, who is the one who is faithful to deliver us from our pit, just like Daniel, so that we might be faithful and prosper in exile. And even if our pit, even if our suffering ends in death, which one day it will, there is the promise that he will raise us from the grave and we will live forever to serve him in his eternal kingdom. Called to be faithful, but much more called to trust the faithful one who is faithful to the faithless, who rescues us and forgives us for our unfaithfulness, and who empowers us by his spirit to be faithful in all of our various callings in life. Jesus, the rescuer. With Darius, we say his kingdom is forever. 
With him, we say, he works signs and wonders. He rescues his people, just as he saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So, dare to be a Daniel, as the children's song says? Sure. And that's some of the story. That's a small part of the story, dare to be a Daniel. But the big part of the story is dare to hope, dare to believe, dare to entrust yourself to the one who is greater than Daniel, the risen King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. 